Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we got a chipmunk in the ceiling, <laughs> apparently. Um, so that's fun. Well, it's not the first time that we've had animals in the ceiling. No, that's right. We, we had uh, a herd of, of feral, feral cats. cats. Yeah. in our ceiling at one point uh, due to no fault of our own. No, of course not. No. no. But you know what? If we had those feral cats in there now, the chipmunk thing wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> so, touche to us. <laughs> Nature's so amazing, really. <laughs> so we got to get a guy out here to trap the chipmunk. Yeah. Uh, there might be more than one. We don't know. We're we still don't know, We're Claire. still waiting to find out. I don't know. But uh, we'll give you a chipmunk update as things progress. Oh, gosh. They're so cute. Now, what do you have for me? In the 1960s, a man named William Little inherited a 20-room property in the London borough of Hackney. This was the 1960s? In the 1960s. Okay. William Little inherited a 20-room property <laughs> in the London borough of Hackney. The Victorian home was at 121 Mortimer Road, according to the BBC. What? Mortimer Road? Yes. Mortimer, Mortimer Road! Mortimer Road. It was valued at a million pounds at the time and had previously belonged to his parents. Not long after taking over the home, he dug out a wine cellar. He quite liked it and he wanted to expand upon it. He wanted to really make the house his own. Flash forward to 2006. The city's council obtained a court order to temporarily evict Little from his home. Hackney Council banned him from the home in 2008, and in 2010, Mr. Little passed away, never returning to what once was his home. What happened? Well, let's back up a bit. Okay. It's 2001, and 
Will, Will <laughs> I tried to combine William and Little and got Whittle. 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 Whittle it is. So the pavement in front of Whittle's house collapsed, <laughs> yielding a wide gash in the road. And this was no ordinary sidewalk failure. It wasn't even an ordinary sinkhole. Uh, one woman who lived nearby said, you can see by way of the gash, all kinds of tunnels no. sprawling out all over the place. Was he a serial tunneler? <laughs> He was. Was he? Yes. He just a guy that liked to tunnel. Whittle had a full lever and pulley system in place to assist him removing dirt from his quote unquote basement. There was a central tunnel made of cement referred to as the igloo. Okay. By him. Okay. Of course, not by other people, just by him. He called it the igloo. And from the igloo were tunnels. So there was spread out like a dome that Mm -hmm. he had built. And then projecting out in all directions, various tunnels. That's correct. Like a giant subterranean spider. Something like that, yeah. The surveyors estimated that the resident known locally as the Mole Man had scooped out 100 cubic meters of earth from beneath the roads and houses that surrounded his 20-room property. Was he building a torture dungeon? No, there was. it was not a torture dungeon, no. Well, I don't want to hear this story. (laughs) All right, well, that's fine. Today, I'm going to talk about Georgette and her torture dungeon. (laughs) Listening. (laughs) Whittle said in an interview, the idea that I dug tunnels under other people's houses is rubbish. I just have a big basement. It's gone down deep enough to hit the water table. That's the lowest you can go. Mm -hmm. But it was a network of tunnels stretching many, many feet in every direction. In one case, as far as Dalston Lane Tunnel and the railway line. How far would that have been? So I did a Google Maps search, and it looks to be about a half mile, according to Google Maps. And and he did this all by hand? By hand. With a shovel and a rope and a pail? He had 40 years. Wow. Justin Milne, who lived as a lodger in Little's house in 1984, because as I said, it was a 20-room house, and uh, Little, you know, wanted to make a little cash on the side, so he had... Lodgers. He had lodgers, but he didn't have a torture dungeon. No. So disappointed in the Mole Man. But Justin Milne had absolutely no idea about the Mole Man's underground habits, despite living in the rooms above. (laughs) According to My London News, he was a bit strange, Milne said, but had no clue about the digging. I remember he had a wild beard that was pretty dirty, which I guess now isn't so surprising. (laughs) So this guy was tunneling, it sounds like, Pretty much night and day for decades. All the time. And the lodgers had no idea what was going on. No idea at all. Uh, the neighborhood did start to catch on, though. At one point, he accidentally tapped into a 450-volt cable, <laughs> and the whole of his street lost power for a day. Wow. Yeah. That's the first thing I thought of when you said he was just tunneling all willy-nilly. How did he tunnel around all the underground cables and uh, natural gas pipelines and stuff like that? Maybe he was just a lucky digger. Maybe he was. Whittle was evicted for his own safety in 2006 because of exactly those concerns. And engineers had to remove 33 tons of debris. From his beard? From his home. So he didn't even put the dirt outside. He just... Some of it went in his backyard. Some of it went in rooms above. Oh, my God. Yeah. And still the lodgers had no clue. Well, at this point, I think he didn't have lodgers. As the years went on, he became so focused on the tunneling that he really let the 
above ground part of the house go to ruin. Oh, my. Which was a shame. But the engineers removed three cars and a boat from under his home. How the hell did he get that down I there? I don't know. Was it in the igloo? They, they then had to fill in all of the tunnels with concrete. Whittle contested the decision in court, and he was returned to his home for a short time. But in 2008, the High Court of Justice ordered that Whittle cover the cost of the council making the structure safe, uh, which was a total of almost 300,000 pounds. And Whittle was rehomed in an apartment in a high-rise building. They put him on the top floor. Yeah, they put him on the top floor to discourage tunneling. That's smart. But he did, while there... uh, burrow through the walls of the home like so oh there were God. connecting walls and he just dug through them it sounds like he could have been a member of the marvel universe he he just got a dig mole man after that the house went to the auction block block okay yep um, it had a guide price of 750,000 pounds, but went under the hammer for 1.1 million pounds after oh. a bidding war by several buyers. People wanted the Mole Man's house. They wanted the Mole Man's house. They wanted house. the Mole Man's house. It is now owned by British artist Sue Webster, who renovated the house into her personal studio and home. Um, she had the initial structural foundations reinforced and strengthened um, the basement redesigned into a studio. Most of the interior had to be absolutely gutted because of the state of the house. And it's much more modern now. But they created this design with multiple entries on every side of the house to oh. kind of pay homage to the mole man. Oh, that's cool. So the bottom level of the home has multiple entrances on each side, and it kind of mirrors that whole tunnel kind of vibe. That's so cool. I think so. So you, they had the uh, the igloo, like we talked about, right. and then the extending arms like a giant underground spider. Yep. And then they filled it all in with concrete. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm wondering what a future generation might think that is when they're doing an archaeological dig let's say you know three thousand years in the future okay what, what the hell is that kind of what what is that structure for they probably think it's like something created to mark the sol changing of the solstice or it's, something yeah it's religious it's always a religious thing they 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 all prayed at churches that had golden arches back in those days the days of yore because spider arches no, McDonald's. I've moved on. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm confused. That's okay. okay. Hey, okay. So why did the mole man mole? Um, in an interview, he said he found he had, quote, a taste for the thing. <laughs> that, does, that sounds so British. <laughs> I love that. Tunneling, he said, is something that should be talked about without panicking. The meter wide opening seen by a few people uh, when the whole appeared in mm. front of his home uh he said we're just shadows just and, shadows and again the concept that he was digging under other people's houses was just rubbish mm. even though he was a hundred percent digging under other people's houses wow. like for sure wow so this is uh wow he's a pretty eccentric guy he said inventing things that don't work is a brilliant thing you know people are asking what the big secret is you know what there isn't one that is so deep. <laughs> so that is the Mole Man. Big thanks to Liz for sending me that topic suggestion. I got most of the details from uh, Insider, Vogue UK, BBC.com, and The Guardian.
the mole man in his torture chamber. No, no, there was no torture chamber. I know. I just wanted to say that so I could I could make the episode that title. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And now, that thing in the middle. Fashion changes from day to day. Back in the mid-19th century, wide skirts were all the rage. Many wearers assumed that the bigger the skirt was, the more fashionable they would be perceived as. Now this became a problem, as some of the women wore skirts that were so big, they couldn't fit through doorways. The Box of Oddities. At a frequency so high, only your dog can understand. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. 
Erica sent us a, an email. My family and I were playing some delightful Jackbox games last week, and I said, you know who should voice the next fibbage? Cat and Jethro. That would just be a scream. And then on the very next episode of Box of Oddities, you guys were talking about fibbage. <laughs> I think it's a sign from the unholy one herself. I'll send Jackbox an email on your behalf. Yes, thank you. Thank you. We, we would appreciate that. We, we enjoy voice work very much. Thank you. Speaking of which, Queen Pins. Yeah, they just released the trailer of Queen Pins. Super excited. Which is uh, the new Kristen Bell, Vince Vaughn movie. And we got small little voiceover parts in it. So you, you're going to have to pay really close attention because seriously, it's like... It's like seven seconds total. Maybe. Maybe. We're, we're on voicemails. You, you'll hear us if you see the movie. It's coming out. It's going to be in theaters in September. And we're excited because we got our SAG cards. Yay! Anyway, I got a story for you. This episode... You know how I like eccentric people. Yeah. I've always been a fan of people who uh, march to their own drummer, so to speak. Well, some might say the mole man was eccentric, and you seem to enjoy him. Yes. Uh, yeah, very much so. I cannot believe loving eccentric people like I do that I have not done an episode on this guy yet, because he's one of the most eccentric. Oh, now I'm curious. Howard Hughes. Oh. Howard Hughes. Did he have something to do with, like, funding Amelia Earhart's flights or he, something? He may have. He he founded Hughes Aircraft, and uh, he was he was into that sort of thing. So okay. it wouldn't surprise me. He uh, he was born in 1905. He was an American business magnate, an investor, record-setting pilot, an engineer, a film director, a philanthropist, mm -hmm. and uh, a, a world-renowned recluse. Straight up weirdo. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Later in life, he became known mostly for his eccentric behavior and reclusive lifestyle. Uh, these oddities were caused in part by his worsening obsessive-compulsive disorder. Oh, yeah. That uh, gained some steam as he, as he got older. He had chronic pain from a near-fatal plane crash. Uh, he had increasing deafness <laughs> as well as an addiction to prescription painkillers. I'm sorry. The term near fatal plane crash blows my mind. Like the thing, the fact that that's a thing at all, because to me, plane crash means fatal. Yeah. No, so not in this case. No, no, I guess not. So he Hughes was married to Jean Peters. Uh, he married her in 1957. Uh, they were married for, for several years, and it was a strange relationship. Words started leaking out about some of the bizarre things that were happening. Should I know who Jean Peters is? She is a 1950s Hollywood movie star. Oh, I'm a Googler. Okay. All right. Now, they got married, and <gasps> toward the end... So pretty. Toward the end of their uh, relationship, they were no longer living together. They were living... Well, sort of together, but apart. They had separate bungalows at the Holly at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, oh. and they didn't really speak to each other. In fact, during the last few years of their uh, marriage, they saw each other maybe a couple of days out of the year, even though oh. they were staying at the same hotel. They would communicate through uh, telephone calls <laughs> and memos, and by the time that they were divorced, those memos added up to about 100,000 pages. Oh, so they did communicate a lot. Yes. So just not in person. Not in not in person. Now, before they were separated, back when they first got uh, married and they were living together, word was that uh, 
the gene had to wrap his toenails in Kleenex so that they because he, he, he wouldn't cut them. And, and she couldn't sleep because he clicked across the bedroom floor all the time. Oh, my gosh. Like banjo. <laughs> yes, like banjo. He also gave her pretty much free reign except for three things. He gave her three rules. You cannot smoke. You cannot shop. And you cannot vacuum. I don't know. Those are three very Very different demands. Strange things. It's not like three. It's not like you can't vacuum. You can't mop. You can't dust. Right. They're three very different things. Yes. Yes. He was a a very unusual man. Yeah. But I have to say, like the the separate hotel rooms thing, I kind of dig. Yeah. We've actually talked about that. Having a getaway weekend separate from each other, where we would go to the same hotel for the Mm -hmm. same time and get rooms that are maybe near each other, but get separate rooms, go have lunch together. Yeah. Then go back and watch TV shows that we want to watch. (laughs) It just sounds glorious to me. It does. So after his death. But we'll send memos, of course. Oh, yeah. To each other. Yeah. Not 100,000 pages worth, (laughs) but but yeah. Uh, Gene Peters said after after Hughes died, quote, I eventually realized that he was a sociopath. A man utterly incapable of understanding the needs of another person. He was very manipulative, even though. He was just darling and charming at the same time. That's the way manipulative people often are. Mm. And even though he was affectionate in some ways and totally persuasive, it was a charade, I guess. Or charade, if you prefer. Oof. He had some very unusual habits. And again, these things accelerated the older he got. Um, One of the more unusual ones was that uh, he was fixated on his urine. He, he would pee in jars and keep the jars. Oh, no, like hoarders. Kind of. He would actually pee in the jars, and then he would uh, give them to his employees to store. He would, uh, he would label them and, and, oh. and store them. Wow. I don't know if it was alphabetical or if it was by color. Well, you know, they say that organizing books by color helps provide a calming and relaxing feeling in your home. So maybe it's the same with urine. (laughs) Sure, maybe it could be. He was also known to be a germaphobe, um, which is weird because he stored Stored his 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 pee in the jars. Um, But uh, he was known to clop around his uh, hotel room with Kleenex boxes on his feet so he wouldn't touch the floor well that's i mean helpful to avoid the click click clicking i guess (laughs) that's true it's multi-purpose who hasn't worn kleenex boxes on their feet that's my question my great-grandfather used to put bedpans on his feet in the nursing home but that was strictly for comedic purposes right that's very slapstick he liked everybody to think that he was losing his mind Mm -hmm. but he wasn't he would just do weird crap like that and then just (laughs) go back to his room and laugh On July 7th, 1946, he was testing a prototype plane that his company had developed. It was a U.S. Army Air Force's reconnaissance aircraft. Ooh, that's a mouthful. XF-11. And uh, it didn't go well. He crashed it into a Beverly Hills residential area. And he had... uh, Several broken bones, many third-degree burns, and during recovery, he became addicted to morphine because they put him on that when his uh, wounds were healing. Did anyone die in this crash? No, no. Oh, wow. He was the only one on board. Yeah, but you said he crashed into a residential area. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. No, nobody nobody died in the... uh, 
in the uh, residential area. It's like in Con Air when that huge plane lands <laughs> in the Las Vegas Strip. And it's like, mysteriously, they don't talk about the inevitably thousands of fatalities. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. It is. So that's when his addiction began. And that kind of escalated things. Now, Hughes was a film producer, and he loved watching movies, so while he was recovering, he decided that uh, he was going to uh, rent a screening room from MGM, it was on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, and just binge movies, binge watch movies. Which that sounds like a great way to recover. It does, except, and it doesn't sound that unusual, except his binging session lasted four months. Yeah, he would recline in a chair in the dark, um, naked. Oh. He uh, lived on chocolate bars, chicken and milk, and he didn't even leave the room for bathroom breaks. He he peed in jars. Oh, well, I guess that saves a step. Sure, sure. Because he was going to put it in a jar anyway. Right. There's no word as to you know where he pooped. Maybe in the empty chicken buckets. Oh, stop. I don't know. Could be. After that session ended... Four months later, MGM burned down that building. (laughs) They probably should have. Yeah. He went back to his hotel and continued binging movies uh, in his hotel room, totally naked with a pink napkin over his winky. Oh, okay. That's what he did. This gets me to thinking, like, what kind of world would we live in? What would our society be like if there were no financial restrictions? (laughs) Like, if we could all do exactly what we wanted all the time, what would that be like? I I think probably you would have uh, people on both ends of the spectrum. On one end, you would have people that were just totally self-indulgent and spend the money all on themselves for, you know, no really good purpose. Mm. And then there would be people that on the other end would uh, would give the money to humanity to make the world a better place. So perhaps it would all even out. Maybe. I'd have a dog farm on a yacht. It continued to get even weirder. On Thanksgiving weekend in 1966, Hughes rolled into Las Vegas in his private train because, well, private train, and um, he arrived at the Desert Inn Hotel. Now, he spent the weekend there, Thanksgiving weekend at the Desert Inn in Vegas. He liked it, so he extended his stay. We've done that before. Yeah. If we get the room one one more more night. But then he tried to extend it again. And the owner of the Desert Inn, uh, Mo Dallitz, uh, went up to his room and was like, um, Mr. Hughes, um, would you mind? We, uh, we've we got some high rollers coming in for the holiday season, so I'm going to need you to leave. Could you put your napkin back on and go? So Hughes decided he would do what any adult person would do in a case like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he bought the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and and then he went on and bought several other hotels along the Strip. Sure. Hey, you know, I've recently heard that Nevada's a nice place to hang out. We got a message from someone at the Alien Cat House in Nevada, and it uh, seems like it's a real nice place. One of the most famous stories about Howard Hughes was, again, when he was living at the, uh, at the Desert Inn, he really loved, he developed this uh, taste for one specific ty- uh, type of ice cream, which was Baskin-Robbins uh, banana nut flavored ice cream. Okay. And so they would buy gallons and gallons of it for, for Howard Hughes because that's all he ate for a long period of time. And then one day they went to get more of these uh, gallons of banana nut Baskin Robbins and they were horrified to find out that it had been discontinued. Oh no. So Howard had them contact 
Baskin Robbins and 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 say, hey, can you make some more? And they told his people, sure, we can make more, but we can only do the industrial size order. Sure. You'll have to buy 350 gallons of ice cream. So Hughes dispatched a refrigerated truck from Vegas to Los Angeles where they loaded up 350 gallons of banana nut ice cream. So they get back to the Desert Inn. More like the Dessert Inn, am I right? <laughs> They've got 350 <laughs> gallons of banana nut Baskin Robbins ice cream. And they just don't, they, the freezers are packed. They're shoving stuff in, trying to find room to put 350 gallons in, in the hotel freezer. I've done that with uh, with those veggie pot pies. It's true. You do love your Marie calendars. In, in our refrigerator. I can get one more if I move those Brussels sprouts over. Anyway, they get all 350 gallons in there, and they run upstairs to tell Howard they're excited, like little kids at Christmas, probably. And they, and they gallop to his door, and they knock, Mr. Hughes, we've got 350 gallons of banana nut Baskin-Robbins ice cream and he said whoa um i'm actually kind of tired of that now from from this point on i would like to have french vanilla <laughs> it took the desert in a year to sell 350 gallons of banana nut ice cream oh, i don't really like that anymore thank you thanks anyway so I mentioned he bought a bunch of uh, casinos. He bought many of them, in fact. Uh, one in particular was called the Silver Slipper. And people were confused as to why he wanted to buy the Silver Slipper, because it was a dinky little casino on the outskirts of the city. It wasn't even on the Strip. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason he bought it was because they had a big neon sign that flashed, and he could see it from his hotel window, and it kept him up. So so he bought the casino and turned... So he could turn the light turn off? Turn the light off, yep, yep. <laughs> He also bought KLAS, a television station in Vegas. And the reason he bought that TV station was so that they would run movies that he liked when he couldn't sleep late at night. And his favorite film was Ice Station Zebra, which is a 1968 action submarine thriller starring Rock Hudson. Roger Ebert called it a dull, stupid little film. Oh, I was going to say, is it something we should watch? But I guess Maybe. not. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Hughes loved it. He would call up the TV station and tell them to play it when he couldn't sleep. Paul Anka wrote uh, in his memoirs, he said, quote, We knew when Hughes was in town, you'd get back to your room, you'd turn the TV on at 2 a.m., and Ice Station Zebra would be playing. And then at 5 a.m., it would start all over again. See, that's what I'm talking about. Like, what would society be like <laughs> if we just had unlimited access to everything that we wanted? <laughs> Up, oh, JG's in town. That thing you do is on again. <laughs> a man with a really nice camper wants to put our record on the radio. I'm, we're, we're all signing. That's my tribute to Steve Zahn. Who, by I, the way, I have a man crush on. Oh, my gosh. I was just going to say I adore your little bromance with Steve <laughs> Zahn. <laughs> Hughes would even call the station and tell him to rewind a part so he could watch it again. So basically, KLAS was his own VCR um, before VCRs were readily available. In the, in the last few months of his life, it was said that that film ran in a projector in his bedroom on a seemingly endless loop. Wow. Just over and over and over again. Now, the guy that helped him buy the casinos was a guy named Frank Mayhew, and he was a former FBI agent, and he had built up a business doing uh, covert operations around the world for organizations like the CIA. U.S. government uh, would employ him many times. When they 
didn't want their fingerprints on various covert operations. For example, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion and also the recruitment of the American mafia to kill Fidel Castro. So he played a big part in helping negotiate with the mob to get them to sell to Howard Hughes. Now, he retained him initially in 1955 mostly to investigate romantic interests and some business rivals. Over time, Mayhew became Hughes's right-hand man. He was the guy that took care of all the big, important stuff. They were constantly in contact. Hughes would talk to him daily for hours at a time. He, he entrusted him with the most sensitive negotiations. Mm-hmm. In 1970, they had a bit of a fallout, and uh, Hughes fired him. But the weird thing is... After 15 years of being his closest advisor, the two men had never met face to face. Oh, wow. That's bizarre. More memos? Memos. Yep. Phone calls. Hughes died on April 5th, 1976 at uh, 1.27 p.m. on board an aircraft. He was en route from his penthouse at the Acapulco Princess Hotel to the Methodist Hospital in Houston. Because of his drug abuse and the mental issues that he dealt with, he was practically unrecognizable. Um, his hair, beard, fingernails, and toenails were so long, uh, they hadn't been cut for what appeared to be years. He was six foot four, but now his frame weighed barely 90 pounds. They had to use fingerprints to conclusively identify the body. The autopsy recorded that it was pretty much kidney failure due to uh, years and years and years of drug abuse and banana nut ice cream. He just didn't take care of himself. That's so sad. There was a rumor at one point that he he survived, that that wasn't really him. There was a conspiracy theory that he'd faked his own death, but that was debunked. One of the biggest issues that happened after he died was over his will. It was disputed by so many people. In fact, they couldn't find it for a long time. And then they found, you know, more than one. Oh, geez. But that's a whole other episode. It would take me forever to get through that. Right. So, Which segues us beautifully into a new segment that I like to call Cat Recommends. Oh. This week, I watched Knives Out, which, yes, I'm way behind on my watching. And <laughs> everyone else has already watched it. But I have to say, I really enjoyed it. It was fun and spunky and enjoyable. So how did you get to that from Howard Hughes? Oh, oh, there was a uh, contested will storyline. So so that's how you got there. So, yeah. Okay. But anyway, Knives Out. Well, that was fun. Thanks. I mean, except for the end. That got real sad. Right. Yeah. Howard Hughes, one unusual dude. You know what else is unusual? Oh, this is going to be an awkward segue, isn't it? That we're doing a live show in New York City. That is unusual. It's our first one. It's our first one. And uh, tickets are available right now. It's going to be August 29th, Halloween weekend in uh, in Manhattan. And we would love to have you join us. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com. Not only are tickets available for the live show, but uh, you can watch the show live as it's being streamed on the interwebbleness. Yeah. So that's available as well. Again, all the details at theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. 
theboxofoddities.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofoddiespodcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.